Well, good morning, everybody. If you've got your Bibles, if you could please turn to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8 and verse 22. There used to be a time in Johannesburg where on a Saturday afternoon, Ellis Park would be filled to the brim. Uh, people who couldn't get a ticket to the ground would be watching the game on TV. The, the, the city would come to a standstill, uh, but... In 2020 now, people are organizing bowls games on Saturday afternoon. What has happened in the city? Guys, seriously, I mean, that, there's, there's something fundamentally wrong when you can actually uh, put on an event that gets sold out on a Saturday afternoon to play bowls. I, I, I'm deeply concerned about what is happening in the city. We, we need to have some prayer and fasting, man. What, what, what is going on? Uh, this morning, I want to speak about um, true freedom and what it is. Maybe you here this morning and you haven't been to church for ages. Maybe you've never been to church. And I'm really hoping uh, that as we look at this account in Mark 8, that you would learn something about who Jesus is and what he's really got for you. But maybe you here this morning and you're a committed Christ follower. Uh, but if you're honest, you're kind of spiritually stuck. You, you had... Big hopes for 2020, and you had set some goals, but kind of the years already got hold of you. And if you're honest, you just feel like your spiritual walk is plateauing. And if you're in that place this morning, I really pray that God would use this word uh, to speak to you. But maybe you're in a really good place spiritually, and I'm, I'm trusting that this word would help serve you. Uh, Mark uh, chapter 8, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eye and put his hand on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They, they, they look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, other Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And what good is it for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anybody give in exchange for their soul? 
If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would speak to us. We pray for uh, the truth of who you are and what you've done and what you call us to would truly be catalytic in our lives. And all God's people said, I want to look at this passage under three headings, an exchange, an encounter, an exchange, and a foundation. An encounter, an exchange, and a foundation. Let's begin with an encounter. My uh, wife, Anna, who unfortunately isn't with me uh, this weekend, grew up uh, in Brighton in the UK. And uh, she grew up in a uh, city where there would be times where there'd be kind of well-known gurus uh, from the East that would come. And they would kind of uh, hire some halls and some auditoriums. And normally what would happen when this guru appeared uh, in town is that people would come to the hall and that they would bring flowers and letters and trinkets. And they would uh, place it on the stage where the guru sat uh, in, in all their glory. But it's just interesting to note that when Jesus Christ walked the earth, people didn't bring flowers and letters and trinkets. They brought the blind and the deaf and the sick to Jesus. And what we discover here in Mark chapter 8 is that a group of friends uh, bring a blind man to Jesus. And uh, no doubt that this man would have been kind of confused about what's going on. Their the friends kind of kind of pulling him along to this guy that he doesn't know at all, has never met, uh, in the hope that something might happen. So it's, it's like an awkward experience to begin with, but we go from awkward to very awkward very quickly because Jesus takes this guy by the hand, remember he's blind, he can't see, and takes him outside of the town and away from his friends. So imagine now you're the guy, you're blind, you're meeting somebody you've never met before, uh, but at least you're with your friends, but then this guy takes you by the hand and takes you away from your friends and away from the town, and now you're with a complete stranger that you do not know, and the next thing you hear is... The guy spits in your face, and, and, and I'm, I'm glad that we're in a community here where they're, they're, they're different cultures, but it doesn't matter what culture you're from. Like, if somebody spits in your face, that is rude, right? It doesn't matter what your, your ethnic background is or what your cultural upbringing is. I mean, that's like a universal thing. You don't spit in somebody's face. That's not cool, right? And so Jesus spits in his face and then says to him, can you see anything? But before he gets an opportunity, to get really upset because like I would get really upset right if somebody spat in my face I don't care if it's the bolster if somebody's spitting in my face I'm getting upset but before he gets a chance to get upset he actually notices that something has actually improved he can actually begin to see and it's like man yeah I can I, I, I can see kind of people that they, 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 they kind of look like trees so, so there's, a, there's a partial healing that takes place. And then Jesus places his hands on the guy a second time. And he prays for him. And then we are told that his sight was restored and that he saw everything clearly. Friends, this is an incredible moment. How many people know that this guy's life was changed forever 
And I've got no doubt that he woke up that morning having no expectation that his life would be transformed like this, right? Because you know what happens? The friends heard, oh, Jesus is like coming to town, this like kind of quasi-prophet teacher healer thing. You never, he's kind of done some of this healing stuff. Let's get our dude there. Let's get our friend there. Let, let, let's hope that maybe something happened. But, 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 but this guy didn't wake up that morning knowing, hey, my sight is going to be restored. And if you uh, know anybody in your family that, has, that is blind, you, you, you know how incredibly socially isolating being blind is, right? If you're blind, you are completely dependent on other people just for normal daily function. And so through encountering Jesus Christ, this guy is set free. This guy is now able to live a normal life. We're not told in the passage if he was born blind, but we can make an assumption that he probably was, which means this guy is going home to see his mom for the very first time. This is the first time he can embrace his mom and see what she actually looks like. This is an incredible moment. So firstly, an encounter. Secondly, an exchange. Now, what happens next in Mark chapter 8, follow me carefully here, is a reenactment of what actually happened with the blind guy. Let's think about what happened with the blind guy. Jesus took the blind guy to a secluded place in order to restore his vision, and that took place in a two-stage effect. Partially sighted, then fully sighted. What Jesus does with the blind guy is exactly what he does with his disciples. Because Jesus takes his disciples to a secluded place in order to clarify their vision around who he is and what he has come to do. What happens with the blind guy is paralleled with what happens with his disciples. Because as he is moving from the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee to Caesarea Philippi, he asks them this question. They're in a secluded place, and he asks them the question, who do people say that I am? And they reply, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks, who do you say that I am? Now, if you do a, a study through the Gospel of Mark, Mark, and I encourage you to do it, we, we taught through uh, the Gospel of Mark last year, you'll discover that there are two big themes that run through the whole Gospel. The one is, who is Jesus, his identity, and the second is, how people respond to him. And here we get the snapshot moment in Mark chapter 8 where the identity of Jesus comes to bear. The first eight chapters, Jesus is always doing lots of stuff. And people are like, who, who does this? Even the winds and the waves obey him. And who, who is this? The, the question of who Jesus is, is building up from chapter 1 right through chapter 8. And here we finally get this moment where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? And it's a defining moment in the Gospel of Mark. And it's a question that has eternal ramifications. N.T. Wright says, if you get the answer to this question right, you can look back and make sense of the first eight chapters. And you can look forward from Caesarea Philippi to Jerusalem and work out what is actually taking place. But it was a question, even 2,000 years ago, that had many different answers. 
You see, Jesus was doing a lot of supernatural stuff and that, but who he actually was was kind of confusing to people. They said he's like one of the prophets. He's, he's doing something special, but they stopped short of his true identity. Some people said he was John the Baptist. Others said he's Elijah. Still others, one of the prophets. But then Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hits the nail on the head and he says, you are the Christ. You are the long-awaited Messiah. You are the anointed one. You, you, you are the king to end all kings. You, you're the king who's going to put everything right. You are God. Friends, if you're here and you're just looking into Christianity, you may think that the Christian message in its essence is a story about a nice guy who taught some nice things, but then something bad happened to him in the end. But I'm here to tell you this morning that the message of Christianity isn't that Jesus is simply a nice guy who taught nice things. But the message of Christianity is this, that Jesus Christ is nothing less than God himself and that he came to planet earth to save and rescue us. The message of Christianity isn't Jesus as the good moral teacher saying nice things and we should just follow his good teaching. In fact, Oxbridge intellectual C.S. Lewis says, if you study the Gospels, that is the least intellectually plausible conclusion you can come to. C.S. Lewis says, if you actually study the words of Christ, what he actually said, there are really only three plausible conclusions you could come to. One is that he is a lunatic. He was somebody who thought that he was God, but he really wasn't. He was just, he was mentally deranged. So either a lunatic or he's a liar. He knows that he's not God, but he's going to fool and trick people. He was like the first televangelist. He was, he, he was the first charlatan out there to, to, to really fool people. Or thirdly, he was the Lord of glory. He is who he really said he was. But as Lewis says, the one option he hasn't left open to us was that he was just a good moral teacher. Because good moral teachers don't claim to be God. And so what we discover here is that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter hits the nail on the head. You're the Messiah. You, you, you really are God. Now, having got the identity of Jesus, right, it's like a partial sighting because now what's going to happen is Jesus wants them to be fully sighted. He doesn't just want them to get his identity right. He wants them to understand his mission and mandate. And so what he does then is he calls them together and he says the following to them in verses 31 and 32. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, that he must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. Now, guys, if you track him with me up to this point, this is completely counterintuitive. For eight chapters, Jesus has been doing incredible things. He's been healing the sick. He's been raising the dead. He's been causing blind people to see. He's causing the, the winds and the waves to, to be stilled. He's walked on water. He's turned water into wine. He's done phenomenal things. And through the whole thing, they're trying to work out, who is he, 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 who is he? And finally, it's like, he's God. He's the Messiah. Yay! And then he says, okay, guys, come together. Here's the gig. I want you to know this is what's going going to happen. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be executed. What? 
We don't get it. We've just worked out who you are. You're the king of glory. You're the great I am. You're you're the sovereign Lord of the universe. And you're going to be rejected. You're going to be arrested. You're going to be executed. What are you talking about? This is like the new coach of the Lions, you know, interviewing him. So what's your hopes for the season? Well, we really hope we're going to get relegated. We hope we're not going to be playing super uh, rugby next season. What? Or the new CEO coming in. What's, What's your hope? Well, I'm really hoping we're going to be able to file for bankruptcy. Really? Is that your goal? What are you talking about? Jesus has just defined himself as nothing less than God himself. And then he pulls his guys together to just establish what's going on. And what he needs to establish is that he's going to be rejected, arrested, and executed. And Peter's like, no way, Jose. That's not going to happen. That's not going to happen at all. We're going to Jerusalem and your kingdom is going to come and your will is going to be done in Jerusalem just as it is in heaven. And we've picked out the mansions that we're going to move in. We know what's happening. We're, 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 the, new, we're the new gig in town and everything is going to work incredibly. It's going to be phenomenal. You don't need to die on the cross. You don't need to suffer. You don't need to be rejected. And Jesus eyeballs him and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Peter, you get my identity, but you do not understand my mission and my mandate. You are partially sighted. You see in part, but you do not see clearly. You do not understand that the Son of Man must suffer. You do not understand this. And then he pulls the whole crowd together. So he said this to the disciples. Now he's going to pull everybody together. And then he says, here's the bottom line. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up the cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. For what good is it for somebody to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Or what can anybody give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. He pulls the crowd together. And he says, guys, if you want to follow me, here's the gig. Deny yourself. Die to the ways of the world. Follow me wherever I lead. Do you get it? Die to yourself. Die to the ways of the world and follow me wherever I lead. And I can imagine that just outside Caesarea Philippi, they were groaning. What? What? Deny yourself? Die to the ways of the world? Follow me wherever I lead? And friends, if they were groaning in Caesarea Philippi 2,000 years ago, they are absolutely groaning in the parks in 2020, are they not? They're absolutely groaning in Josie, right? What are you talking about? Deny yourself. What are you talking about? Die to the ways of the world. What are you talking about? Follow me wherever I lead. Like, Jesus, can we just pull you aside? Because this isn't, this message is not going to fly in 2020. Like, we really want Christianity to take root, uh, you know, in the parks area. We really want Christianity to fly 
in Joburg, but if it's going to fly in Joburg, you're going to need to modify the message here, because just like a heads up, in 2020, people are not really into self-denial. Self-denial is not big, it's not popular. If we want to grow this thing, if we want to get the movement going, don't do the deny stuff, and, and the die to the ways of the world. You know, the world is actually pretty awesome. They're doing lots of fun stuff, and the, the death thing, death is such a negative thing anyway, and then, and then to the world is also not good. People are positive about the world. You don't want to die and world, and that's not good. And, and follow me wherever I leave. People aren't into just like followership just for followership's sake, you know, and wherever I go, that, that, that's not going to work. And you're talking about going to die, and so that's not going to work. We're not going to follow you wherever you go. It doesn't really fly like that in Josie. Jesus, the way it works here is it's, it's pretty simple. We look inward. And we work out what our wants and needs and desires are. And then we look out and we say, world, rearrange yourself in order to fit in with our wants, needs, and desires. And nobody has the right to tell us that our wants, needs, and desires are wrong. Not even you, God. Our wants and needs and desires are our ultimate authority And world, rearrange yourself in order to fit in with us. And for us, that is true freedom. That is true freedom. And if we could think of a Disney character that would encapsulate the song of our heart, it would be Elsa in Frozen when she sings, It is time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free. And Jesus, that's the song of our heart. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I am free for us. Freedom is to do what we want. Freedom is our wants, our needs, and our desires. And this message of deny yourself, this message of die to the ways of the world, this message of follow you Wherever you lead is just not going to fly. We are not into self-denial. We are into self-assertion, self-actualization, self-sufficiency, self-fulfillment. Not self-sacrifice. Not self-denial. That's not going to work. In fact, we are so allergic to anybody telling us what to do that the only way, according to recent studies, that we can be mobilized to do anything is only if somebody could show us how doing a particular action would benefit ourselves. Latest studies show that we will not be moved to change our behavior, even if the change of our behavior would help our community or indeed the environment. In a 2013 Stanford University uh, study, it showed that if you want to mobilize people to change their behavior, you must show how their behavior change will benefit themselves, otherwise they won't change at all. If if you present a picture of behavior change that would benefit community or benefit the environment, but you can't show them how it will benefit the individual, the individual won't change. And they use this when it uh, related to issues uh, like uh, recycling and other issues that would, would benefit the society at whole. Modern people will not change unless it will benefit themselves. Why is this a problem? Well, it's a problem because at the very heart of Christian maturing 
is a willingness to no longer live for yourself, but to live for Christ. And if your whole life is teed up with you just doing what you're wanting to do, you are going to get stuck spiritually. You are going to stall spiritually. Because at the heart of Christian maturity is an ability to no longer live for yourself, but live for Christ. Friends, I, as a pastor, see so many Christians who say, yeah, yeah, I really love Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. I get his identity. And I will follow Jesus to the degree that Jesus follows me. But the moment we get to an impasse, the moment we get to a crossroads and Jesus wants to go left and I want to go right, I always go right. I don't go left. So I will agree with Jesus to the degree that Jesus agrees with me. But the moment that we disagree, I go with myself. I do not go with Jesus. And friends, the consequences in our life are catastrophic because we, we, we get 100% on who Jesus is. We get that he's a Messiah, but we do not embrace his mission and mandate. And that's why so many Christians are stuck. That's why so many Christians don't even go to church because they, they're just happy to tick the identity box, but they're not happy to tick the followership box. But the incredible thing about Jesus in Mark chapter 8 is that he really wants us to get unstuck. He really wants us to get unstuck. And actually, he's read the Stanford 2013 study. And so what he actually does is he appeals to your self-interest. He says in this passage, guys, think about it. What if you do make your life all about yourself? And what if you gain the whole world? Like you shoot the moon. You get everything. Like Gates and, and uh, you know, plus Apple, plus Tesla. You, you, you own it all. You get everything. Everything you wanted, you get. But you lose your soul. You've lost what if you make your whole life about yourself and all your dreams come true, but in all your dreams coming true, you lose God, you lose everything? What profit? Do a profit and loss. Jesus is asking you, do a profit and loss. What's the profit in getting everything your own way, but in getting everything your own way, you get fundamentally and profoundly out of sync with God and you become the very opposite to the person that God created you to be, you lose. You lose. Do you actually really want to be who God created you to be? Lay down your life. Because in laying down your life, you actually discover it. You become the person that you were meant to be. We had a, uh, our youth pastor blessed his wife, it was her birthday, and he flew her up to East London uh, for four days to see her best friend, and that meant that he needed to, uh, for four days, uh, be mom and dad. And uh, there have been a couple of moments in my life where I've been responsible for all of the kids all by myself. Uh, you can give me an award later. And uh, I said to him, I said, I actually found those moments easier than normal life because in normal life, what I find is I find ways to be selfish 
and not really engage as a parent. But when it's all left to me, then I've really got to roll up my sleeves and start to serve and really invest in the kids. And actually when I've done that, I found the joy of being a parent. Being a half-hearted parent just keeps me being stuck in my selfishness and not really doing it. But when it's all on my plate, then I get the joy of being the parent by really parenting. And friends, that's what Jesus is saying. You can think you're gaming the system by being a pseudo-Christian. I do the bare minimum. I agree with Jesus to the degree Jesus agrees with me, but I don't really sacrifice. I don't really deny myself. I don't really lay down my life. I do it in a pseudo way. It's like, you know, the pastor should be happy that I come, you know, one out of five weeks. I mean, that's better than other people, right? I do it in a pseudo way. Much better we lay down our lives and we really follow Jesus because in following Jesus fully and wholly, we discover who we were really meant to be. Lewis puts it like this. He says, the more... uh, that we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let him take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own upbringing and surroundings and natural desires. In fact, what I so proudly call myself becomes merely a meeting place of trains of events which I never started and which I cannot stop. Lewis continues, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, death to your ambitions and your favorite wishes every day and death uh, of your whole body in the In the end, submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you've not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him, everything else thrown in. Give up your life and you will find your life. And maybe you here this morning think, yes, I, I, I want to do it. I know I want to do it, but tomorrow I'm not going to want to do it. And this afternoon I'm not going to want to do it. So, so how do I take this desire now to want to do it and make it reality? Well, let's just go back to our very first account of the friends bringing the blind man to Jesus. And I just want to point out four things that we can learn from that passage that can really help us to be men and women who really live for Jesus. The first thing, if we're really going to live for Jesus, that we are going to need is friends, right? These friends brought this guy, this blind guy to Jesus. And friends, we are not going to be able to see clearly and fully without Christian friends who really care for us. And true friends aren't the people who let you do what you always want to do. True friends are people who bring you to Jesus. That's the definition of biblical friendship. And we all need friends. And that's why in this church, we've got life groups. Who wants to do that? I mean, seriously, am I going to give up a midweek? Do you know how busy things are in Joburg and how bad the traffic is? Why do I want to do that? Because you need friends who care for your soul. You need friends. And secondly, you need prayer. Notice when they come to Jesus, they begged Jesus to touch him. And friends, you are so riddled 
with autonomy that you need friends that will beg Jesus to break in. I don't know about you, but I need people to stand with me and say, Lord Jesus, please would you help Stephen not to live for himself. He is so addicted to himself and his ways. Please, could the gospel be so real? Could the majesty of who you are, Jesus, be so real to him that he would want to gladly lay down his life for you? We need friends and we need earnest prayer. Western culture is so into autonomy that we desperately need earnest prayer to get us off ourselves and onto Jesus. And then thirdly, we need honesty. This whole story in Mark 8 could have been massively different if this blind guy just decided to fake it at the moment critique. Can you see anything? I can! I'm healed! Praise the Lord! I can see! And he would have gone out hugging trees and cutting down people, right? But at the moment where something significant happened, he didn't exaggerate what happened. He didn't exaggerate what happened. I'm saved! I'm a Christian! Everything's fine! Although I'm still profoundly selfish and living for myself. He said, no, 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 I can see, I, 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 I can see, I can see people that, that, that look like trees. I'm, I'm, I'm like partially sighted. And friends, some of the reason why people don't go to life groups and small groups is because they've got, they've got way better things to do than to come to a meeting where everybody fakes it. When you ask a Christian how they're doing, what are they? They're fine. Everybody's fine. And I'm a pastor, and I'm telling you, most people are not fine, but everybody is saying that they're fine. And I get that you don't want to go to a meeting midweek to find out that everybody's fine when you know they're actually not fine. How are you doing, Steve? I'm actually, I'm not in a good place. I'm really selfish. I'm living for myself. I'm giving my wife the bare minimum. I'm not being the parent that I should be. I'm riddled with my own selfishness. Now, that would change the life group meeting. Some people say, well, I think that's a bit of an overshare. We don't want to do that, which is code for we don't really want to engage how people are really doing. We just want like some tea and coffee to chat and talk about the weather and the sport, and that's fine. We don't want real life. But what if in Parkhurst Community Church, we just, we were really honest, and we banned fine. We know that nobody's fine, and people were just really honest about where they're at. And their desperate need for God. Because the fourth thing that we see in this passage that transforms the whole situation is that this blind man gets a second touch from Jesus. And I don't know about you, but I just want to say, I desperately need a second touch from Jesus. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that most Christians he meets are in between touches. They've got the first touch, but they haven't got the second touch. You get the identity of Jesus, but you do not get his mission and mandate. And what we desperately need is God to touch us again. God, would you come and touch me? It's not okay that I'm like this. It's not okay that I think that people look like trees that are walking. That isn't what you've got for me. It's not okay that I can pass the test on 
who you really are. Like some of you like, oh, the C.S. Lewis quote, we've heard that so many times. You can get 100% on the identity thing. You know the C.S. Lewis quote. What's the problem? You're not living it. If he's really God, then why wouldn't you deny yourself and follow him? If he's really God, why wouldn't you lay down your life? If he's really God, why wouldn't you follow him wherever he leads? But so many of us are happy to have an intellectual place where we say he is Lord. But functionally, we live so differently. And we desperately need Jesus Christ to come and touch us again. And what happens if in life group this week, you're just like, how are things going? And it's like, man, I don't know who that dude was from Cape Town, but I need that double touch thing. And what happens if this week we actually really start praying for people that God would come and touch them and that the Holy Spirit would soften our hearts and change our desires so that we would really live for Christ. Because the incredible thing about Jesus is he doesn't just give this talk and say, I hope you enjoy the message. Thank you. Good night. He goes and lives the message. Jesus does deny himself. Jesus really lays down his life. You see, he does go to Jerusalem and he does get rejected by the very people that were meant to accept him, by the religious leaders who were meant to be aware that he was coming to town, that were meant to embrace him as the true Messiah. They, re- they rejected him. He was arrested. And he was brutally mocked. It's like, oh, you, you're a Messiah? Like maybe you're here and you're visiting. And it's like, oh, this Jesus is God. Messiah, they were exactly like that. They got hold of him and said, you're an idiot. You think you're a Messiah, but look at you. You're an idiot king, and for idiot kings, we've got an idiot crown. Here's your idiot crown of thorns, and blood starts pouring down his eyes. Oh, you're a prophet. Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to blindfold you, and then we're going to smash you in your face and prophesy who hit you, because you're the prophet, right? And then we're going to nail you to a cross naked. And while he is hanging naked on a cross, there are people walking past. It was on a busy road. Walking past going, ha! He saves others! But he can't even save himself! They're mocking him. They've heard some of his preaching. Ha! He saves others! Look at this complete idiot! Hanging naked on a cross. He thinks he can save others, but he can't even save himself. But of course, in their mockery, there's divine irony. Because Jesus couldn't both save himself and save us. Either he sidesteps the cross and saves himself, but we get sacrificed, or he dies on the cross, he sacrifices himself in order to save us. And he chooses the cross because it's the will of the Father. And from the cross he cries, Eli, Eli, let us my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why does he cry that out? Because he was forsaken. So that you and I would never be forsaken if we put our trust in him. He really did lay down his life. But then he rose three days later to show that he is who he says he is. He truly is the Messiah.